You're listening to The Authenticity Show, where you get to eavesdrop on great conversations about health, creativity, and the quest for excellence. Your hosts are Carlos Casados and Satch Purcell. Before we get started, I'd like to remind you to subscribe to The Authenticity Show wherever you get your podcasts and find us on social media. That means like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, and check out our YouTube page. Our guest today is Dr. Paul Leslie. Dr. Paul Leslie is a therapist, educator, and international trainer who has extensive experience in creative, resource-directed approaches to working with clients. He's also an author who writes in the areas of psychotherapy, healing, and personal transformation. This is another one of the amazing conversations that make me feel truly lucky to be able to work on this podcast. Let's dive in. All right, fellas. Mm-hmm. That's great to see you. And yeah. we have the wonderful Dr. Paul Leslie here. Yes. With Welcome, Paul. Greetings, it's Paul. good to have you. Welcome. Oh, thank you. I'm uh, honored to be asked to uh, participate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So, Carlos, um, uh, you know, so, so uh, Paul, Car- Carlos just has a knack for meeting amazing and interesting people. It's just, he's just always been that way. And so, um, uh, so I always like to ask him, like Carlos, how is it that you met yet another very interesting person that we're gonna that we're gonna get to have a chance to talk to today? Well, um, I was introduced to Dr. Paul Leslie from uh, our mutual friend uh, James Tripp, who's mm. also oh, been yes. on the show. And um, you know, James and I talk a lot about different things. You know, every every few weeks, try to have a, a Zoom call and chit chat about stuff. And he mentioned you, Paul. Mm-hmm. Um, he mentioned that he was going to take this class, and he sent me a link. He said, "Hey, um, you know, you should check this out. I think you'd be interested in this." Or maybe he tagged me in it. I can't remember. But mm-hmm. um, it was the, specifically the course you have on creating a magical session. Okay. You know, uh, coaching, and and I have been um, embarrassingly overwhelmed and have not begun the course. Uh, I cannot speak from my own experience yet. I've just only read the materials. And of course, I've listened to some podcasts that you were on with other people. Sure. And that was enough for me. I was like, okay, um, I want to interview this guy. It was be really wonderful to get in this conversation. And I'm looking forward to the class. Uh, it's, in the, it's in my queue, ready to go. So um, <laughs> as soon as I have that moment, I, I'm going to jump into that because um, I like um, what you said. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. Well, thank you. Don't don't sweat. Not you know the course. There's a, so much material in it too. So you know you'll get to it when you when you need to get to it. But yeah. Carlos, late starts. You the highest grade you can get is a B. Okay. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. Started late. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> um. So 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 Paul, you're um. In addition to being like a you, you are I believe a practicing um uh. Uh, mental health care professional. You're you're a therapist, right? right, right. But you also uh, teach. Uh, you're you're involved with a, a college or university. Yeah, could, could you yeah I'm a full time faculty member at a a college, a small college here where I live in Aiken, South Carolina, which is a very small town. Although I've just learned that it is the equestrian training capital on the East Coast, so mm-hmm. apparently uh, it has its charm. Uh, yeah. For those who are into horses, but I, I also have a private practice uh, that I see clients here locally. In addition to my uh, international coaching and teaching thing that I do, and uh, I uh, try to um, 
I guess I just try to stay busy. And I've been fortunate that a few years ago, I decided that I was going to kind of streamline my life to focus on the things that were most valuable to me, the things that I found the most value in. And that's uh, teaching and writing and speaking and uh, kind of eliminate a lot of other things. So I'm able to stay very busy doing a lot of really cool things. And I think I'm at the point in my career where I'm kind of now just feeling like I want to kind of give back and and help others uh, who are, are coming along and maybe kind of streamline, uh, make their uh, their work and their experiences a little more, um, uh, how should I say, enjoyable. Because, uh, you know, it's always great when you have the ability to talk to someone who's done something before you, even if they haven't done it well, because you learn all the things that, that maybe uh, you probably shouldn't do. And, and to me, sometimes intelligence is not knowing uh, what to do, but it's also knowing what not to do. Sure. So I've done I've done a lot of what not to do. <laughs> so uh, if I can you know, help other people along the way, that's kind of my passion now. Mm. It's, it sounds like the the uh, the the opposite of of the Tao Te Ching, right? The Tao Te Ching is is the way, mm-hmm. right? And so you you could write a book on this is not the way, right? So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think we could all write a book called This Is Not the Way, right? Right? Yeah, totally. And fill in well, the gaps, right? Well, one of one of the best uh, marriage therapists uh, in in the world, and uh, someone who's been a mentor to to me that I won't, I won't mention his name. He's been married like four times. But man, I'm going to tell you when he's working with couples, it's pure magic. But, you know, his own his home life, he's had to kind of trial and error. And maybe that's what he's doing. Maybe that's why he's so effective is, you know, having all those uh, what not to do. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Actually, it would be the Boo Dao De Jing. The Boo Dao De Jing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. Boo is a Chinese word for not. Yeah. You, you, you heard the yang side of things yeah. now for the yin side of yin things. Side. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's well, great. I just, I just want to say, you know, um, given that, um, Paul, you, you have such a mild and calming, um, nature and you you, uh, I wouldn't necessarily say you're that you're, you're that guy who, who markets himself in, in, in this very forward way. You're, you know, you, you're just sharing your wealth of knowledge and things like that. But I just wanted to uh, make it more, even more comfortable. Uh, if there are books you've written and things you'd like to share, I don't want you to feel that, like that's weird, like I'm being salesy or anything like that. Because the purpose of this is to also educate us, but every one of the listeners. So if there are things that you think, hey, you know, I wrote this book or that book, we want to know about it. So, okay. so don't feel any weirdness about that at all. I want you to share that and feel comfortable um, bringing it up in the conversation so people can look it up. They can start Googling while they're listening and, and things like that. Sure. That's great. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. You know, uh, I, I did a quick, um, uh, read over the, the, the synopsis of each of your books that, that you've done. And there was one of, and actually there's a lot of really interesting stuff there. Um, there was one of them that sort of struck me in a kind of a nostalgic way is, um, I, I, I looked at your, um, your book, um, low country shamanism. And you, you talked about um, uh, the, the the hoodoo practice, and you talked right. about about conjuring. Right. And thirty uh, something years ago, when I was in high school, I did a play called "The Dark of the Moon," which was which was somewhere which took place somewhere in the southern mountains, where there was a witch boy who fell in love with a mortal girl, mm-hmm. and he went to the conjure man 
to be changed into a, into a human so he could marry her. And so I just always remember conjure man, conjure woman, you know what I mean? Like, you know, it's like we, yeah. th that was, that was a big part of the play. And, and I've thought about that many times, you know, over the years. And so that caught my eye in your book. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, that might be an interesting uh, thing to talk about. Um, what, what, what is this about? And uh, yeah. you know, how, how did you get involved in that? Well, you know, it's, it's funny is that you do this, you have done the same thing that most everyone does. It's like, I'm on my eighth book. And of all the books, that's the one I get the most interest in. It's catchy. And the one, yeah. oh, it, it is. It's, and it is. I, to me, it was kind of transformational. And, and what I mean is, uh, and for folks who don't kind of know what the really the book's about, it's basically, since I, I mentioned I lived in South Carolina, uh, when I first moved here many years ago, uh, I started hearing uh, through uh, clients of people that, that I was in supervision with about uh, there were still some remnants of this magical and healing system that we call hoodoo with an H, uh, slightly different than voodoo, which is uh, magic and healing, but it, it, it's kind of a religion. Hoodoo on the, uh, the uh, eastern coast, like North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, um, it's this, it's this kind of magical healing system that uh, kind of blended uh, a lot of African spiritual traditions in with Protestant Christianity, herbal medicine, all these kind of things that people from West Central Africa brought with them when they came to the New World, uh, unfortunately under the most terrible of conditions uh, being brought over as slaves. And in those days, uh, a lot of uh, people don't realize a lot of the healing of day-to-day -day, uh, injuries and, and illnesses and emotional issues uh, were not provided so much by slave owners and overseers. Uh, you know, the they would call the the doctor when it was very serious because at that time slaves, you know, were property, and you you wouldn't want your your property to be uh, broken because then you have to go out and buy more property. So uh, the uh, slaves themselves were kind of left to come up with their own ways to heal, their own ways to build resilience in the most extreme conditions that fortunately none of us will hopefully ever have to even imagine going through. And it became this, this um, cultural uh, tradition that was kind of hidden after uh, the Civil War and slavery was ended, it still became kind of a hidden tradition because uh, a lot of times these uh, groups of uh, slaves were left to their own devices out on the sea islands off the coast of the Carolinas and Georgia. Because after uh, the Civil War, a lot of the, uh, the white population actually abandoned those areas because the, the North was coming in. And so for a long time, these folks were left on their own. They have their own culture. They have their own ideas. It's it's a kind of a, a blending of different uh, spiritual and religious systems. Uh, these folks are known as the Gullah. And the Gullah uh, have a very proud tradition, and they're very resourceful and, and, and wonderful uh, people. Uh, some of them uh, in Georgia are called the Geechee because there's the Ogeechee River that kind of divides things, but it's really uh, the Gullah-Geechee culture. So I was hearing about all of this magic and things and people having spells put on them and hearing about clients who they're having panic attacks because they believe somebody had put what they called a root on them, which mm -hmm. we would call a, a hex. Because down here, hoodoo practitioners are sometimes called root doctors. 
And they're called root doctors because of that tie-in to early days of herbalism, finding roots for healing and those kind of things. And doctors is in the healing part. But they're also magicians, uh, white magicians and black magicians. I don't mean that as a racial distinction, you know, good and bad kind of uh, ways of doing magic. So when someone down here said they, they believe the root was put on them, what uh, they're talking about, someone has put a hex or a spell on them. Or they'll say, uh, I'm, I'm carrying my root with me. And that's also kind of like a mojo bag, if you know anything about New Orleans voodoo. Mm-hmm. But it's their, kind of their own version of that. So I just got really fascinated in this. And it just a long, uh, making a long story as short as possible. It's just, I started uh, investigating, you know, this kind of hidden tradition. And uh, I knocked on a lot of doors and a lot of people didn't answer. <laughs> and if they did, they they told me they didn't know about things. And then I found out later that they did. And then finally, I, I gained a little acceptance to some people in that realm. And I started interviewing them and ga- gathering information about this uh, system that they that they use to, to help people. It, it really is. Now, there, you always get the, the bad person out there trying to do things, uh, trying to make money or trying to harm other people. But most of the practitioners that I met were actually doing uh, shamanism. I mean, it fit the exact template that uh, Eliade, who kind of coined the term shamanism back in the 40s, he was a uh, uh, anthropologist, a professor at the uh, University of Chicago, I think. Oh, and he gave that. this template that you had to meet certain conditions. Well, I started looking at the, the root doctors, and not all of them, but most of them met those conditions. They, they engaged in, uh, in uh, interactions in the spirit world, or you know what they perceive as the spirit world. They went on these kind of vision quests. They did all of these things that we, we think only you know different other cultures do. And I, I found a very clear uh, template for uh, the, the low country. And I call it the low country because down here, that swampy uh, coastal area is called the low country, lower than the, the other part of the state. Mm-hmm. Uh, that low country shamanism just fit perfectly into a lot of other shaman traditions. You had drumming and chanting and all these things. The one thing I did not find, as in with some traditions, is um, hallucinogenic substances they went into altered trance states by uh dancing kind of mm. like you would see mm. with the kalahari the bushmen yeah, where they the bushmen. would dance for hours and then yeah. have these out of body and trance states so it, it's another example to me of sometimes the coolest things are in your own backyard and you don't even realize it yeah. and so it's a way to kind of honor these uh people in that tradition that's kind of why i wrote the book and it's kind of from a western psychotherapy view of this uh, this tradition and culture, and unfortunately, there's a lot of people who who actually talked to me, but they didn't want me to mention them, and and they're kind of real hesitant. And I think it's a bit of a shame because uh, there's there's some really remarkable uh, practitioners uh, in in that realm. It also gave me the reason it was transformative for me. I started understanding uh, transformational therapy better because these root doctors did a couple of things that I think is absolutely essential for good therapists. One is they instantly get really good connection and rapport with their clients. And Mm -hmm. two is they create an experience for the client that is so different from the experiences that they're presently going through that they created these conditions for change. These are big keys, aren't they? Mm. Oh, huge, huge. That's why when I brought that back to kind of looking at therapy, it's like all the great 
psychotherapists that I've studied or even know, uh, the one, one reason that they're great is that they're always creating a unique experience for their client. And sometimes it's just to sit in their presence and talk to them. And we've all met people who uh, are so blasted charismatic that they just, you know, and I don't mean that in a manipulative way, they just exude something. Some people are just so caring that just when they look at you and you talk, you feel so comforted. So whatever it is, this is a new experience that's being created. And the third thing, I mean, there's many more, but those top three things was that in a, it's kind of a performance art in that you're doing these rituals, you're doing these uh, ceremonies, whatever it is that you're doing in a hoodoo uh, healing session, uh, we'll call it, uh, they're not so tied that it has to be a certain way or they have to use a certain tool or a technique, whereas uh, unfortunately, therapy, a lot of people think it's the tools and techniques that change people. Well, 20 years of research has shown when you really look at the, there's a field of study called common factors in psychotherapy, mm-hmm. any type of therapy, hypnotherapy, whatever. But the thing that actually changes people aren't the techniques and aren't the theories. As a matter of fact, that only counted for 15% right. of the change. It's empathy it's connection it's uh, uh we'll use the term utilization which is a term from the yeah. work of dr milton erickson whatever the client's doing you just roll with it and you you kind of improvise and the, the greats tend to intuitively do that even if they had a theory that they were doing they just kind of still kind of went with what the client was doing and used it as a way to bring forth change so i saw this in these low country hoodoo doctors root doctors and I was like, this is something to me that, you know, is, is value to me as a therapist, but also culturally, they're doing um, fantastic therapy, their own kind of therapy. Mm-hmm. But that's what I think our field, my field, and, uh, you know, hypnosis and things like that, sometimes we, we miss as we get hung up on techniques mm-hmm. and theories, but those have the least amount of application when it comes to healing. Things that matter, empathy, uh, connection a sense of hope and expectancy on the part of the client and the therapist. This is a co-creative experience. The root doctors get it. Unfortunately, the therapists generally don't. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. This is, you know, Satch, this This is reminding me of our conversations about therapeutic relationship. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I love what you're what you're talking about here, Paul. Um, you know, I, I happen to be an occupational therapist, okay. and so in occupational therapy, well, I mean, we, in occupational therapy, they work in in different settings. You know, um, right. anywhere from neonatal intensive care to to mental health and everything in between. So for me, I worked more with um, the elderly population. I, I did geriatric rehabilitation, and and uh, um, I don't do that now. I, I kind of like you. I, I I work at a at, at a college. Um, but if I reflect back, I'm listening to all these things that you're saying about 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 these these shamans here in in, in um, where where you're from in your own backyard, and I'm thinking those are all the same things that uh, I found success with working with clients. You know, right. you have somebody who fell and and broke their hip, mm-hmm. and the therapists come in, and this is the first time since this person has been traumatically, you know both physically and psychologically damaged, this is the first time they're going to sit up on the edge of the bed and they're terrified that they're going to fall again. Right. Right? Right. It's not, it's not the therapy techniques. 
It's none of that that causes the breakthrough. Right. It's it's letting them understand that you know what I I see I see that you're concerned about this and you know what that's why they sent me mm-hmm. because I recognize this is dangerous and we're going to sit up together and um, we're going to do this at a pace that's comfortable for you right. and it's really important to me that you feel like you're in control of this you know what I mean? and boom next thing you know the person's having breakthroughs and sometimes they might even cry a little bit like yeah. oh my gosh I feel better I'm out of the bed for the first time and you know and and none of that's 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 all the stuff outside of the curriculum. Yes, yes, exactly. You know, I want to speak to that. My uh, partner is a uh, works in physical therapy, and uh, before I met her, she was an expert at utilization because she would always use uh, whatever she could pick up from the client as a way to get them to do things. And as you said, uh, sometimes people have fears about moving because you know they have to move a certain way, but it hurts. So she would ask them things like. Uh, notice that they're wearing a hat that says army and mm-hmm. she'd say, Oh, were you in the army? My dad was in the army. And then somehow use that to bring out the warrior within. Yes. Finding out where they're born. Oh, you're from Ohio. Okay. Yeah. I'm from Ohio too. And you know, do you remember you know, Wittick's chocolate in Circleville and, yeah. and you know, <laughs> just bring all that stuff. And because anytime people are in pain, whether it's physical pain or emotional pain and those two, as we, both know kind of crossover. If we're not actively seeking what the client already possesses and and using it as a resource, what we're doing is we're trying to dictate to the client what he or she should be doing. Well, that's not a co-creative process. That's us being a parent. Mm-hmm. And and I don't I, I I was a parent for a while and uh it's a lot of work. <laughs> and to me, I will. I don't like to work so hard. So if I can pull something from my my client and we can work together, uh, we can create those outcomes. Much much Sash, like you're saying with that working with the the people who you know they're scared of the the pain and sitting up and all. But finding that that resource within them, whether it's they're in the army, where they're from, uh, mm-hmm. well, what will this give you if you were able to walk a little better? Just in the next six months, what would you get out of that? You know, some good mm-hmm. solution-oriented questioning, because it all comes from uh, the individual. And by the way, guys, if I start rambling, just say, Paul, shut up. Just okay. so I'll get on a roll. I'm this is, this is some of the best rambling I've yeah, heard in a while. So this is great. Here. Yeah. Ramble away. Yeah. yeah. So, so if we're trying to get the client to, to do these things, we are trying to do that as a co-facilitator of creating an experience for them. Now, what we get in, in therapy and hypnotherapy and coaching and all these is that, unfortunately, there is a legacy of us doing things to the client, or at least it's perceived that way. I mean, you got to go, I mean, our field, you go back, I mean, you know where we really started? People always go to Freud. We go back to Mesmer. I'm sorry, if you're a psychotherapist, your lineage is back to Franz Mesmer uh, back in the 1700s for mesmerism to where it was basically, he didn't know it really, but it was, he was doing hypnosis, Mm -hmm. but he thought it was, you know, uh, you know, body fluids or something kind of weird Mm -hmm. thing. And uh, he was discredited by, yeah, 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 exactly. He was discredited uh, by uh, Benjamin Franklin. He was. Oh, really? Quick question. Is that where the word mesmerized comes from? Oh, exactly. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Because Franklin came over um, with uh, some other French because Mesmer um, had a lot of influence in the French court and all. And they wanted to see, you know, if this was true or not. So Franklin kind of set up an experiment uh, to where the observing things. And sure enough, 
what Mesmer said uh, was happening uh, wasn't, they found that wasn't the reason it was happening. But then the question is, well, why did it happen, right? Mm-hmm. So he his, his idea of why it was happening is what's uh, been discredited. But the, the bigger question for me is, why is any healing happening? And I read a, a book a while back, and I cannot remember the title, but the authors are named Bohart and Tallman, and it'll come to me. But Bohart and Tallman uh, put forth the hypothesis that all healing, emotional healing, those kind of things, are client self-healing. The therapist doesn't do anything to them. The the, uh, the therapist is merely activating their own self-healing ability. I found it. Okay, How clients make therapy work. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's it. Thank you. Yeah, okay. that's and that's a great book. I mean, it's got tons of research in it. But it comes down to if we see ourselves as the practitioner or the healer, as the person that we're going to get our client to heal, we're missing a huge component of what these root doctors and other people uh, understood is this is an experience you're creating to activate healing in the client, much like a placebo, although I don't want to frame, you know, any type of therapy as a placebo. But, uh, you know, when you take a placebo, like a a sugar pill and a drug uh, uh, trial, it activates the body responses and people who believe they've had the drug may show signs that they've had the drug, even though they haven't. Well, humans have a natural ability to heal. So my job, your job, if you're a healer by any any arena, is to help your client activate their self-healing potential. And sometimes that may look like doing uh, a, a hypnotic induction. It may look like cognitive behavioral therapy. It may look like you have to bring out the rattler and the, the feathers and do a ritual for them. It may be just like turning to them and go, you ever thought about doing something different? I don't know what it is, you know, asking. Yeah, exactly. So that's where I think we're we're all missing the boat is we're looking at healing through a paradigm of a linear uh, application of um, that that you do this, then you'll get this result. But all the research on on therapies and including all the traditional therapies, even things like the the tapping, uh, what we call it, uh, energy psychology, EFT, right, those things. It's all the same. They all get results. All the major techniques and theories, they all get results. No more than any other. They're all equal. But the ones who get uh, this this healing activation, what we really see is that what I would call a transformative experience rather than just an effective uh, experience is where the person's truly shifted is that 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 practitioner has done something to create some shift inside the person that that then the healing can begin on the inside. And it may just be creating the conditions for those healing uh, moments to occur. And that's what I got from the root doctors. They'd say, you know, I don't do the magic, one of them told me. I just create the conditions for the magic to happen. Mm. I, I love that idea. Yeah. You know, as you as you were explaining all of this, I've I've, I've been reflecting on um, the healing experiences that I've seen myself, um, the ones I've been involved with, and I've also I'm also reflecting on the ones that um, maybe weren't so successful. You know, mm-hmm. talking about going down the wrong path, and and I think one of the things I'm I'm seeing, just kind of an intuitive feeling, is that um, every time. Not every time, but you know, for the for the most part, when the practitioner 
looks at it as them doing something to the patient, like you had spoken of a little while ago, versus being a witness to some kind of healing, that makes a big difference. And I'm wondering if maybe a better attitude for anybody who's in, you know, the, the healing arts is to know that maybe, maybe the, the foundational level is I'm a practitioner, but maybe the more advanced level is I'm a witnesser. You know what I mean? I'm going to help create the conditions so that I get to witness whatever healing is about to happen. You know what I mean? And, and maybe take that approach. And, and, um, I've shared this with you, Carlos, this is, this is a really fun story. Um, uh, so Paul, my, my wife, um, has multiple sclerosis. And so this is, this has been a long thing over, over many years. And, um, uh, a long time ago, she went through a really, really, really tough phase where she was having, um, just awful vertigo to the point where, I mean, even, even a turn of the head would result in vomiting and, and, right. and this, uh, caused us to go to the urgent care a number of times and to see the, the neurologist in the area that we lived and trials of different medications and injections of Phenergan and, you know, all kinds of stuff. And, um, and involved me um, doing acupuncture and giving her Chinese herbal medicine and, and doing all these things that could be done with, with marginal results at best. And we finally made an appointment with uh, an old neurologist that we had a lot of respect for. And I'm going to say his name because he's passed away and, and uh, just a tribute to how amazing he was. His name was Dr. Stanley Vandenort. Hmm. And um, he was a multiple sclerosis specialist. And um, we, made, yeah. <laughs> and we, we made a special trip to go down and see him to see, is there anything Dr. Vandenort could do? you know, for, with this vertigo scenario. And you know what the answer was? Okay. He, I, you know, so, so, so my wife was just really in misery sitting in her wheelchair, just but doesn't even want to move. And he, and he said in his, his little, his little way, he said, Oh yes, dear. <laughs> and he kind of laughed. He says, Oh yes, dear. I know these, these dizzy situations just feel like they're just going to go on and on and on forever and that they're never going to go away, but they eventually do. That was all he said. And it was the way he said it, the timing of the way he said it, all the, it was the perfect anti-storm. Everything came together. And, and as we were leaving, she was already feeling better. We get to the car. She's like, oh, I feel like Dr. Vandenort's so good. I feel like I'm already getting better. And I was looking at that whole situation. Like we went, we spent weeks and weeks mm -hmm. doing all of these interventions with little to no results. And all Dr. Vandenort did was give her hope mm -hmm. and confidence that this has to go away because these things always go away. And that was the difference. Mm -hmm. And it was like all that training, all that medical school, all everybody's training, right. none of that was what made the difference. And you guys were in rapport with that man. Oh, big time. Big he was in rapport with you. Yeah. And he was great at, um, at creating it in, in a snap, you yeah. know, so... Well, it's, and again, hope is one of those common factors. Uh, you know, a great question when you're working with a client is, uh, if you're like a psychotherapist, is uh, in the first session, you know, uh, when you come to the point where you don't need me anymore, what will be different? Mm. And that gets some great. kind of solution-focused goal, but it also sets in their mind that therapy is going to end mm -hmm. and that you won't need me as the therapist anymore because if you don't need me, that means where's the problem gone, right? Yeah, so I think that alone can be a powerful way to see that, you know, eventually the, because let's be honest, most of us have experienced 
things like anxiety and depression and those kind of things. And when we're in the midst of it, it feels like our problem's never going to end. Because if we really had on a calendar, okay, in three months, this problem's going to end. If you knew that, that alone would keep a lot of people from having to come see us in therapy, right? But it's that we don't know. So if we don't have hope uh, and and an expectancy that change is going to happen, we're already at a disadvantage. And and it definitely makes us want to say, I got to, I got to change. I got to fix whatever this problem is where a lot of times our problems are really just daily living. And we, we keep trying to solve a problem, but sometimes by trying to solve a problem, you know, we, we, make it worse. And then, you know, it gets out of control, but, and we think it's never going to end. And then we say, Oh, if I just leave this alone and three months, I'll be okay. I think that's a different way to see things much like your, your wife's like, okay, well, I know this is eventually going to end. I can relax. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's all she needed was somebody to say, it's okay to relax. Yeah. Yeah. It would sure generated that inner healing process. You know, mm-hmm. that was the beginning of it right there. So yeah. we, we seem to be at a, at a time um, an era, if you will, where there's a lot of integration um, between different kinds of methodologies and there's a lot of multidisciplinary sort of uh, specialties and things kind of popping up. And we have greater capacity to crunch the data and to explore and new, new methods of exploring it and things like that. Um, I remember watching a, a TED talk about um, early childhood trauma and how that affects the um, immune expression through, as, as a, as a as a person develops, you know, and I remember uh, a book from the seventies, uh, way back that was called "Mind as Healer, Mind as Slayer" by Dr. Kenneth Peltier. Yeah, 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 he's a, classic. Yeah, he's a he's a big he's a friend of one of my close friends, Jeffrey Mishlove. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Well, uh, it, yeah. we actually interviewed Dr. Jeffrey Mishlove. Oh, okay, yeah, Jeff. Jeff's a great guy. Yeah, yeah we, we we actually flew out to uh, to Albuquerque to interview him. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, it was yeah. A fun he's a trip. wonderful yeah. man. Yeah. Fun. yeah. During the yeah, balloon festival it. out there. Yeah. But yeah, uh, Dr. Kenneth is a, is a remarkable man, a remarkable guy. And that book, a lot that's in that book, because like you said, it's back in the 70s, a lot of, that was way ahead of its time. So, yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, and, and you mentioned placebo earlier, and I think a lot of people, uh, Satch and I have had this conversation over and over again mm-hmm. about the word, uh, for most people, it kind of equates with uh, like a dismissal. You know, mm-hmm. there isn't this acknowledgement of, no, 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 wait a minute. Listen to that again. This is placebo. Isn't that right. cool that your mind can do this, right? Mm-hmm. And then there's the flip side of that, which is the the nocebo effect, you know, um, the medical hexing, if they call it sometimes. Um, and it, it always baffled me since the first time I ever heard it. It always baffled me why people weren't con- uh, in the mainstream medicine consciously utilizing that, Mm-hmm. to to bolster the therapies that they were doing since it's clear that um it's working against them sometimes yeah. when they are using really poor um you know bedside manner and things like that and and um just wanted to talk about that maybe open up the discussion a little bit yeah because placebo has really at least not in my field but i would say most fields have not has not even remotely been studied as deeply as I think it could be. Mm-hmm. And I think you're very right that it's saying, oh, well, that's just a placebo. So a guy who's had 10 years of depression or anxiety thinks he's taken a pill that's going to help him. And suddenly he feels better. 
whereas possibly any other intervention hasn't helped. And it's, yeah. oh, well, that's just a placebo. I'm like, man, what? <laughs> come on. I mean, that's that's like gold. I mean, but I, I think I think our nature, we want something. We have this idea we want something that works. Yeah. And since we can't really quantify a placebo, whereas we can quantify a certain chemical compound that you ingest, uh, it's we don't like. I'm speaking over over generalization here, but we generally don't like things we don't understand. Mm -hmm. And so if we can't understand them, we tend to dismiss them because it makes us uncomfortable. And when you're a researcher and you find out that placebos generally outperform most medications, that's an uncomfortable thing. It is. Mm -hmm. So it's better just to oh, it's just a placebo and, and, well, and go on. It naysayers might listen to what you just said there and say, well, yeah, but that's very subjective. You know, uh, the person was depressed or not feeling depressed now, but yeah, it's all subjective. I don't want to interrupt. It's all, it's subjective. all subjective. This yeah. entire thing is subjective. It pain is. is subjective. When you do a pain, it's like the doctor comes in on a 10 scale. That's the person's perception, which is subjective right. of right. a pain. Now you can look on the x-ray and see a bone snap. I mean, that's, that's, that's objective. But a person's pain, a person's emotional pain. Now, and that's the problem. We're trying to measure and do things about things that are subjective mm. as an objective observer. And <laughs> yeah. I, I don't, it's like people who study consciousness, and I really respect them, and I have an interest in that, and I, res and I have some friends who are really into that. I wonder if we can ever understand consciousness because the very thing that we're using to study consciousness is consciousness. So we yeah. end up creating this loop. And a lot of times it's the same kind of thing with uh, I have to I have depression or anxiety since we can say that, oh, it's caused by, you know, the biological model. It's caused by chemical uh, imbalance, which that that idea has been kind of discredited in a lot of ways because it's a chicken or an egg. Did the chemicals uh, start because of something else or and, and right. then it's this whole debate that, you know, we'll get way off topic here, but I want to go back to the idea of, of subjective. It, what is, uh, not to be esoteric here, but what is reality? Reality is when someone makes a distinction and gets agreement on that distinction. That's all reality is mm -hmm. at the uh, constructive level, other than gravity and things like that, that we all can observe mm -hmm. and say, you know, this, we can all agree upon that, but, you know, I have to make a distinction about something when I observe something, I have to say, this is not that. And now I've already created a dichotomy. Discernment. And yeah, exactly. And then, but I have to get agreement about that. And if I can't get agreement with you, if I get agreement with myself, right. now I start to filter everything through that reality. So I may be a seven on a 10 scale, but how specifically do you know it's a seven and not a 7.5? Right. I mean... So, or 6.9. I mean, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I do yeah, my clients yeah. sometimes. Is, I'm a seven on a scale. What would it take to get you to a 7.3? They go, uh, I don't know. And they <laughs> go inside and play with it, you know? And, yeah. Okay. Oh, I, I, I didn't mean to interrupt. I'm sorry, Carlos. I, I just, no, no. This is a great tangential thing because that's kind of why I wanted to talk about it because there's a lot of little um, eddies that we could follow. Um, one of them is psychoneuroimmunology, you know, the work of like Dr. Mario Martinez and others. Right. Um, uh, you know, Satch and I are kind of fans of, of, of 
his approaches and things like that is very interesting. Um, his yeah. stories about how he's healed uh, or worked with other people's healing um, by facilitating these changes on the emotional and psychological level and the narratives that are inside and, and all of that. And I've definitely witnessed that. I, I, I wanted to share an example of something that just happened to me recently. Uh, Satch knows that I've had um, an issue where um, if you can see my hands, I, I wasn't able to close my hands more than this. So I, it looks like I'm holding a, I don't know, a, a tennis ball in my hands. So I was not able to close my hands fully. And that was about six months. And um, as you know, I'm a hypnotherapist and I'm open to various kinds of healing. I've tried acupuncture and chiropractic and I've gone to regular medical doctors. I even had MRI done. And everything that they found was just so, so inconclusive. And I wasn't able to get any real change to happen inside my hands. And it was kind of a series of realizations, but I went in for um, a neuromuscular massage from someone I really respect. And he just said, yeah, um, you know, what are you trying to, what are you trying to hold on to that, that you, that you, you shouldn't be or something. And, and I, mm -hmm. I kind of went, ha, 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 very cliche, you know, kind of dismissed, but I thought, hmm, maybe I should think about that a little bit. And then a little while later, um, I had a therapy uh, where this person did a, a form of body work that involved um, a ketamine injection. <laughs> and um, so it kind of knocked out my um, uh, association for a little while so that I could kind of dive more deeply into my psyche. And concurrently with this, I was going through um, like a healing having to do with an attachment that was not healthy for me. And it was really paining me deeply. Like for, and Satch knows this is like six or seven months of, of just like really anguish, pain, romantic pain and all this kinds of stuff. Well, um, when I went into this experience, it was a psychedelic experience, really. Um, I saw this person and um, when I emerged from it, the, the healer who I was working with said, I feel like your hands are were, have been trying to protect you from something. And that's why you're experiencing this. And it all clicked together. And suddenly my right hand was able to close to about 95%. And she said, hey, I am not able to continue working with you because it's been a, two or three hours and I've got to go home, you know, and, and but we can work on that left hand next time. So mirror neurons being what they are, I fell asleep that night, like almost 20 minutes later. And when I woke up in the morning, my left hand closed 100%. Oh. But then I thought, well, maybe this is just a, you know, correlation is not necessarily causation. Maybe, maybe this is just a coincidence. Um, I got messaged by that person who that unhealthy attachment was, and suddenly my hands wouldn't close anymore. Now that, okay, the plot thickens here. I, you know, there's a lot of evidence here now. And so we did it again. It was able to close my hands. And um, when, when I continued to, when I made this connection, I realized that, wow, you know, now my hands are probably at about 10, 15% left. So in other words, when I wake up in the morning, I usually can't close them. But then um, after you know, walking around a little bit, I can close my hands all the way. But what's changed is I can actually squeeze now. So I could open up some things as long as it's not super, super, super tight. I couldn't even do that before at all, at all. Couldn't even barely get my shoelaces tied. So to me, um, you know, as a person who works with the mind and the body and all that kind of stuff, I thought, well, even I wasn't able, or at that time, I did not have, 
a clear view on how I could get to that level of understanding deep within myself and just release it. But this substance that I took in allowed me to get a little bit of a preview of what I could do maybe later. You know, it gave me sort of a, a sense of what I was capable of doing. It opened the door and it kept the door open for me so that I could release whatever it was. And 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 now I've just got a little bit of residual healing, but I can flex and and to imagine six months of not being able to close your hands, how frustrating that is, mm-hmm. right? And every day now I'm able to close my hands all the way, Mm. even though it's, like I said, there's about 10, 15%. I still need to work on through the joints, but there's no other explanation. It was literally just one night of, of, of having this shift and suddenly my hands could close. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't just psychological in the sense that um, I was imagining I couldn't close my hands because if anyone else had tried to close my hands, I would have screamed. Yeah. I tried. (laughs) I passively tried to close your hands. Yeah. 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 So anyway, just an example. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's the the fascinating thing is about the mind. Uh, many fascinating things, but it's that it is hard to turn the mind into this linear thing that you know A goes to B because it sounds like A and B were tied to X, Y, and W or something that you weren't even thinking about. Yeah. Or number seven, which isn't even in the alphabet. And, uh, but yet that, you know, whether it was or not, you know, I'm big on results. I mean, we don't know whether anything's real a lot of times, but it's, if it got a result, then it tells me that that's what you needed at that moment in time. Yeah. And when we, we don't really understand, because basically for me, some of these deep seated emotional things that we all grapple with, a lot of times it's just, at that level of, of symbolic, symbolic somatic nature, because mm-hmm. we're still representing things that uh, may have happened to us 20 years ago, but we're not aware we're representing it. Mm-hmm. You know, I've, I've done a lot more, investigated a lot more with like therapeutic rituals where I have people do things that symbolizes uh, their problem. And that alone sometimes creates a pretty profound shift mm-hmm. in how they now view themselves and their problem. And a lot of this I got, uh, I was inspired by a lot of the, the root doctors, the hoodoo doctors, but also the work of the uh, Chilean uh, filmmaker, uh, Alejandro Odorowski. Oh, I love Joda. Yes. Oh, he's, I, Fantastic. We could do three hours. He's, yes, he's we could. One of my heroes. <laughs> he's one of mine too. Yeah, yeah. love it. Love yeah, it. But his, his idea of it's always a symbol and representing it. And uh, his uh, uh, Jodo's thing of uh, psycho magic and all of, uh, the kind of creating that kind of inspired me. And I started seeing how instead of having people go back into the past and relive things, uh, his work, uh, Dr. Milton Erickson's uh, ideas on, on certain pattern interruptions and things like that were a quick example. Uh, uh, I had a, uh, a client one time who he was terrorized as a young boy. His stepmother was like the classic wicked stepmother to the point to where she was actually into, according to him, black magic. Mm-hmm. And when his dad would go out of town for a couple of days on business, she would make him engage in these really dark and kind of sick uh, rituals. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and of course, he was terrified to tell his dad. And eventually dad found out and, you know, kicked her to the curb. But he grew up, he was only in his 40s now, and grew up 
constantly in terror, even though he he lived in California. Now he's over in South Carolina, but he's still in the back of his mind, always wonders, is he going to walk out of the grocery store and see her again? Even though he's a big guy and he can snap her in half, it's just that fear that's in there. So uh, I uh, I had him write down on a piece of paper all the things that she did. And then I surprised him one day and I brought in a Ouija board. Hmm. And I taped it to the Ouija board. And then we went out in the edge of the woods near my office and he had to destroy it, not using a hammer with his own body, figure out a way to destroy it. Hmm. And then after he fully destroyed it, I had him put it in this plastic bag and go home and bury it deep in his backyard and then put a plant, a beautiful plant, like a rose on top of it. Wow. And I said, just come back in two weeks. In two weeks, he says, you know, I didn't tell you this before, but I have to sleep with a nightlight. He says, I haven't had to use the nightlight anymore. Wow. So his mind was already starting to change and transform because that symbol of the Ouija board unconsciously tied to her being a, a, a black witch or whatever, you know, black magic thing. And he was able to, at the unconscious level, kind of break those ties. Mm-hmm. And then his body, that's the self-healing. Because I didn't do anything. I didn't give him logic and say, you know, here's some logic. You ever thought that, you know, maybe you're 40-something years old and you don't need to be afraid? Well, of course he knows that, you know? It's more dream logic. Yeah. It, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And yeah. So, yeah, it's it's not surprising to me that when you had that experience, it was down at that level. Yeah. That was symbolic and you had to move all that other stuff out of the way to kind of get to it. Definitely. And it's it's fascinating because um, I'm extremely aware of these ideas. I have been all of my pretty much all of my life. I was raised in an environment of spirituality and metaphysics and esoteric stuff. And then I got into um, you know, the, the NLP hypnosis and psychology path. Um, and I've actually been working for the past 10 years to integrate my magical and ceremonial shamanic sides with my um, sort of therapeutic um, hypnotherapy sides and trying to find a, a match with those things. Um, and, and so I was surprised that I couldn't just sort of tell myself to do it. Uh, I wasn't able to access that level of it. Um, I needed something to act as a bridge to help me bolster my, my dive into myself, I guess. But now that I know it's possible, I feel like maybe I could now, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Open my eyes to it. Mm, Nice. Uh, You know, um, I love this topic because this is, uh, to me where things get blurry, you know, where, where, uh, you know, there's room for possibilities that that maybe hadn't thought of before, and magic can happen. You know, when, when enough people, uh, even just two people, are um, uh, allowing things to emerge, and they're following this. You know, you, you mentioned fear of the unknown, mm-hmm. um, and I, I I was going to ask you where where do you think that comes from, and then it occurred to me that maybe that's an evolutionary thing. You know, it's mm-hmm. not necessarily just a the result of of uh, the philo- the philosophy of of our social socialization, but maybe there's some element of the you know our deep 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 biological past that fears it too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Well, and you know we're we're also primed most of us to be afraid of the dark. Yeah. And uh, you know we, we as we grow we don't get as afraid. But now if you take us to a place like that's not our house <laughs> and it's dark and we can't see. 
our anxiety naturally goes up a little bit. And that's that's obviously an evolutionary thing because, you know, if you can't see, there are predators, you know, 100,000 years ago, there are predators out there. So at dark, we have to be on guard and it's it's more, uh, you know, with our, with our group, which is why, you know, the social connections used to be, uh, you know, very important, uh, more so than now, because, uh, you know, I can live by myself and go to the grocery store and live, a, you know, a, maybe not the happiest life, but I can be content. But back then you would die if you didn't have that social interaction. So, yeah. you know, the, the fear of the dark in there, that makes perfect sense. The unknown, what's 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 going on? Because we and this all comes down to control. We have to feel like we have some degree of control over any situation. And that, that leads me, I'm going to go backwards a little bit. And that leads me to this idea of doing therapy. What this ability to not be in control. Mm. Now, I don't mean that in a negative way, but just kind of release control and allow things to happen. Uh, I think uh, improvisation as a therapist, as a healer, uh, is so important because if you're not comfortable letting go and letting the client move a little bit, uh, this session's really about you rather than the client. Mm-hmm. And I think our natural inclination is to to not fear losing control, like much like afraid of the dark and, and and those kind of things. But being able to to allow things to unfold when you don't know what's going to happen, mm-hmm. and so much of our our work, our field, we're taught things. Uh, whether it's in medicine, whether it's in psychology, whether it's in hypnosis, et cetera, et cetera, that when this happens, do that. When X happens, do Y. But at the same time, it is all a reactionary way of doing work as opposed to an interactive, co-creative thing. You're Mm -hmm. co-creating rather than kind of waiting. Now, somebody's going to throw a ball to you. You're waiting for the ball. But and when you're doing a co-creative interaction, uh, you don't know who's going to throw the ball, and and there might not be a ball. They they may throw a stick. They may throw nothing. They may start singing. They may you know, and you have to be comfortable. I think to do really that magical healing work, you got to be comfortable with whatever comes out, but also able to unleash that part of you to be authentic. This is the authenticity show to be authentic and let these things who you are, as long as it's uh, ethical and and all to emerge and to connect. So there is a natural hesitancy uh, and fear of, of doing that. But for me, that's when the magic of a magical session happens. That's where the transformation happens. It's not in stuff I already know. I mean, think about mystery. Uh, This idea that we want to know everything. If we know everything, there's no mystery. But we get scared of it. We we were intrigued by mystery, but we get scared because it's it's what we already know. That's why I think a lot of times therapy is kind of boring. Yeah. If all we're doing are things we already know. Right. Where's the magic? Where's the mystery? And sometimes diving into that deep end is, is where healing is. It's not in what we already know. And let's be honest, if it was really in what the client already knows, why are they coming to see us? Yes. Mm. Sometimes um, I, I'm, I'm very aware of it when I ask someone what the problem is, that what they're telling me um, may have some bearing to what's actually the problem, but um, I'm pretty sure that most of the time it do, it's absolutely not the full story. And, and sometimes uh, there may be things that might seem like they're coming out of left field, but that actually is where the problem is. And and, mm-hmm. and they consciously are, are describing something that doesn't relate to that. 
Um, And it's just interesting what emerges because, you know, I feel like it's important to give someone the space to describe those things. They need to feel like they are telling you something a lot of times, you know, they want to feel like they're saying, oh, here's where my problem is. Um, That feels good. It's satisfying, but it doesn't necessarily relate to ultimately what will make them better or what will help them. And there's other things that may come off, you know, um, primarily body language, you know, looking at the way the micro gestures in their face and and the movements of their body and the tonality shifts in, in the way they say their mother's name or whatever it is that, that actually reveal where I should be asking, where I should be looking and, and listening. Um, and the rest of it's kind of like the puppet show in a way sometimes, you know, like where the, the you know, what where, what's the hand that's driving the puppet? you're on something i'm going to say something here that uh, hopefully everybody follows i mean not that's esoteric or anything but it's kind of counterintuitive when we go working with problems we're already solidifying a problem yeah Mm -hmm. so anything that a person does uh, or experiences and they put in the frame or the context of a problem any solution that we try to offer is still in that frame and context so it becomes difficult sometimes to solve a problem because what does a problem have to have to be a problem? It has to have a solution. Mm-hmm. What does the solution have to have? It has to have a problem. Yeah. Those two can't exist. So what I found healing for me is when we exit that context totally, mm-hmm. whether it's directing their attention to something that's not even related to the problem or changing the whole frame, the whole context of how they see this so-called problem. Um, If if someone thinks there's a problem, it's that they've made that distinction that it's a problem. If the observer sees something and says, oh, this is not that, like we're talking about earlier, they're creating uh, the problem. It doesn't mean that they're they're creating pain and hardship and all that. I'm not, you know, heartless here. But the way they view this, a certain situation determines the problem. But if I buy into that that uh, theme that they've created, mm-hmm. then all I'm doing indirectly, even though I'm trying to work in hard, is I'm actually reinforcing the very thing uh, yeah. that they they want to want to change. For example, a woman comes in with her eight year old boy, and uh, says uh, he's he's a bad boy. He's acting out. I, I I was in this abusive marriage. I got out. Two years been out. I finally started dating, and he's so ugly and nasty to my new boyfriend, who's such a nice man and. He's not doing his schoolwork and he's throwing tantrums and we got to do something with this boy. And the therapist says, isn't it really amazing that he's testing this new boyfriend to see that he's strong enough to deal with you too. And he's not going to be violent. So in a way he's kind of protecting you. Mm. Well, that's totally changed every bit of action in that context of bad boy because bad boys don't usually take care of their mother. Bad boys don't protect their mother. So the more we say this is a problem and the more we get focused on a problem, the more we actually solidify uh, the problem. And Mm -hmm. what's really amazing is when we, again, shift our perspective and the client's perspective. It's like pain. When you're working with pain like hypnosis, Mm -hmm. a lot of people uh, are wise that they don't even say your left arm is in pain. They spend all their time talking about how comfortable the right arm is. Mm. And then when they come back, they go, wow, you didn't say anything about left arm, but it feels better because you directed your attention, your awareness, everything to somewhere where there isn't a problem. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like balancing out those scales a little bit. 
and we all got problems. I mean, I got tons of problems. I mean, we, you know, but it, it's like if I really want to solve a problem, I need to like not consider it a problem or totally experience the problem in a different way. So if you're somebody with OCD and you got to tap your light switch 10 times every time you flip it on and it's getting it is a problem for you. Well, then this is a real intervention I did with a lady, but go ahead and tap it 10 times. But between every tap, do a jumping jack. (laughs) You're you're still doing your problem, but it's doing it totally ridiculous, different way. And it's interrupting that pattern of that problem patterning. Yep. And uh, she came back, you know, two weeks later and 10 times became six times. The third session came two times and she says, I'm done. It's great. uh, Yeah. Mm -hmm. And again, it doesn't always work perfect like that but it's just an example that too much attention on the why we're having a problem let's focus on the problem just gives you more of the problem mm-hmm. yeah yeah um it, it's reminding me of uh in i'm not sure if you're familiar with uh family constellations constellational yeah, okay yeah. so the work yeah. of bert hellinger yeah uh, which uh, which odorowski does his own version of that Yes. Yeah. He does the, the, that's the psycho magic, the, the, the whole, um, I was it genealogy. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's so true. Um, I'm very interested in it. Um, and, and I've been doing some work and some training in that, um, under some really amazing teachers and we interviewed a couple of them actually on the show. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, the idea of representation, you know, that, that, that things can be represented by people or other things, and ideas and even subcategories of feelings can even be represented and, and interacted with, even if you don't know which of those things relates to the problems or the issues or the solutions that you're dealing with. It can be done blindly where you don't even know. And that's the way we tend to work it. And, and a lot of intuitive stuff happens from that. It's like a, like a moving tarot card ritual of some kind. Mm-hmm. But um one of the foundational principles besides acknowledging what is fully uh, is the idea of um, the problem is the solution. So the question and the challenge question that comes up for me and for a lot of my clients is how specifically is this problem a solution? Mm-hmm. And you get a lot of furrowed eyebrows and you know distant stares as people go, what? the right. f are you talking about like right. how on yeah. earth could this problem be a solution and then sometimes they go for a really shallow level i don't know um it isn't you know because they're thinking just linearly like i don't like this mm-hmm. but if if i keep leaning into that question a lot of rich stuff comes out of it even if we don't immediately conclude something really profound there is these layers of richness that comes out of asking that question Mm-hmm. And it, mm-hmm. it, it reminds me of, of another quote that we say sometimes on the show, which is a Charles F. Qu- uh, Kettering quote. He said, um, a question well-formed is a problem half solved. Mm. You know, yeah. and, and, and the idea that, that in asking a question, well, in, in a really correctly identifying a problem and where you see the structure of the problem very clearly uh, and understand it, its layers, a question is inside of that that could potentially presuppose the answers, like the, the like a key in a lock. You know, mm-hmm. the key has a particular shape, the keyhole, and therefore only a particular type of key can hit all those pins and 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 make the mechanism unlock. Right. So it's right. like it's 
completion in that mm-hmm. solution and problem. And mm-hmm. it's, it's an interesting mm-hmm. idea. I yeah. like that. Yeah. 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 Well, that's, I was thinking as you were saying that, the idea that we create these dichotomies when we make a distinction, we say it's a problem. And then imagine there's a slash and on the other side is no problem. Mm. Well, what you're doing is that slash that divides them, you're slowly starting to erase it. Mm. And that's mm. healing. Mm. It's not changing the problem. It's not solving the problem. It's adjusting your relationship to the problem. Mm-hmm. So what you're doing is you're, 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 you're blurring the distinction that says this is a problem and this isn't. It's kind of an example if someone comes in and says, uh, Doc, I got a problem eating chocolate cake. I'm like, that sounds like a great problem. <laughs> I love chocolate cake, right? Oh, no, it's a terrible problem. And then you go, well, why is it a problem? Well, I'm eating too much. And then you start getting, well, how much is too much? Right. Yeah. Now I eat uh, 10 pieces uh, every hour. Okay, threshold. You know? Threshold. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. So, w- what's the, as Gregory Bates and the uh, cyberneticists and anthropologists used to say, well, what's the difference that makes the difference? difference yeah. For him, it may be just, I need to eat just two pieces an hour. Right. Yeah. So, if you ate two and a quarter, would there be a problem? Now, that alone will make people go, uh, hmm, uh, you know, and so we're starting to, to blur that. So that question that you're saying, you know, how specifically is the solution here? It's like it starts to, to much like the example I gave with the, the little boy who was acting out, the bad boy slash good boy. Well, when you kind of blur the, that slash that, you know, says these are separate things, then, uh, you know, it stops being as, as bad a problem or you might not even see it as a problem. And this is my hang up about people who use the term, I shouldn't even say this, I apologize, apologize to anyone who's listening. Uh, who we'll defend term, you. Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, I need all the defense I can get. <laughs> Let me tell you. Uh, say, I'm a spiritual person. And you say, okay, that's fine. What does that mean? Yeah, what does that mean to you? Yeah, mm-hmm. and what's the slash that say I'm spiritual and I'm not spiritual? Mm-hmm. And every person that I've met who seems to really get that whole idea of being spiritual, there's no slash there. There's no yeah. thing that's, it's like everything is spiritual yeah. and everything isn't. I and love that's, that. Yeah. That's, you know, so it's the same kind of thing. It's like we create, we're doing the observing and we say, here's the distinction and this is not that. And that's when we start creating reality, but we forget that the reality that we're viewing, we create it. And I'm not talking like this new age, you know, everything's in, you know, you created, you know, well, the guy who just ran into my car, I can't buy that I manifested that, right? Some people do. And if that's your belief system, that's fine. Uh, I personally say there's some things that just happen, but how I view that creates a distinction. And if I get hung up with my distinctions and I forget that I'm the one that's making them, well, then I naturally will have problems. For me, I've always found that term enlightened. You know, Mm -hmm. he's an enlightened person. I want to have enlightenment. You find a billion different explanations for that. For me, being enlightened is simply just that you realize that your story about reality is just a story. Mm-hmm. That's all it is. But that's my that's distinction. Great. That's you know? great. Yeah. You know, I love what you're saying here. It's it's almost like uh, sort of the, the secret sauce is to simultaneously see the, the shadow side of whatever you think is the light side. You know, like, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I'm good and I'm bad. And I'm bad, and I'm also good. And just yeah. go ahead and see it all at once as one unified whole. You, you know, right. um, yeah. So I'm enlightened, and I'm in darkened, all at the yeah. same time. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's like I told uh, when I got into a relationship that somebody would, a uh, girlfriend would say, uh, you know, you're so wonderful, and I'd say sometimes, and that would <laughs> kind of annoy her. 
<laughs> it's, it's the truth. Yeah, sometimes I am absolutely wonderful. And other times I'm totally annoying. I'm awful. Uh, I'm rude. I'm crude. I'm uh, short-tempered. I'm kind. I'm loving. I'm times been hateful. And it's 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 kind of just acceptance of all of those aspects because we're the one making, you know, what's her distinction, you know? Uh, maybe she's lowered her standards so much that anything I do is <laughs> wonderful. So, but she's the one making that that distinction. So, uh, again, it's 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 all in that idea that we're we're everything. It's just we start only paying attention to one part of our experience, mm-hmm. which was why uh, my, my um, one of my mentors, Bill O'Hanlon, called trauma a bad trance, because when you're traumatized, it's because your attention can only be focused on one thing because what's happened to you and so a lot of times our job is to just shift the trance to different areas to become more aware of other things other than the trauma and that could be healing in itself Mm. the the not problem right right exactly kind of like uh, what are the cartesian uh coordinates you know a not b b not a not a b B, not b a you know that kind of or the 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 tetra what's it called the tetralemma you know of of um the greeks which originally came from the the indian uh logic quadrants you know Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mm. i love that idea you know Mm -hmm. i'm in how am i not this problem you know all these things yeah of that Yeah, I'm I'm enjoying this this uh, conversation about um, really looking at things as problems or not problems. You know, and I think if we were to come back to, um, we could apply this to the topic of the placebo effect, as we were, you know, getting into earlier, is that I think part of the problem with the placebo effect is that it was originally stated as a problem rather than a solution. Right. Like right from the very foundation of it, it's like, well, wait a minute, there's this thing that's screwing up our results. This is a problem. And so right from there, we framed it as a problem, you know, right from the beginning. It's like we, we almost have a duty to undo, uh, to untie that knot. You know what I mean? <laughs> and, yeah. Well, let's look, look at, at let's pretend the experiment was set up this way. You have two groups. You have your control group and experimental group. And it's a million dollars is the outcome. So the experimental group has to do all these things to see if they get a million dollars. The control group doesn't have to do anything to see if they got a million dollars. If one person in that control group got a million dollars, how many people would be all over that placebo effect? Mm-hmm. And yeah. saying, I, we have got to study this, you know, they, you know, yeah. so, it, but you know, there's also, I, yeah. well, right, you know, there's right. people have uh, agendas too. Mm-hmm. Sure. Oh so yeah. I just sure. leave it at that. They do. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Paul, um, what, what would you say? Because you know you're you're conveying a lot of um, your knowledge and your interests and things like that in the in the writings that you're doing and you know the courses that you give. Um, what would you say? Your like, do you have like a mission or something that's driving you to, that you really kind of is yours that you feel like you really want to um, place a lot of emphasis with um, the people that you're training and teaching and mm-hmm. so forth. I've it it gets refined all the time because, you know, we're always growing. But lately it's been, as I mentioned earlier, I like to give back. I like to to help uh, people in my field to have uh, learn how to have more transformational sessions and find magic and meaning in their work. But on a different level, as I getting older, I mean, I hit the big five oh this year. And so it's kind of a. Yeah, man, here we are, half century. And I'm six months uh, away. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, there is life after 50. I don't know. I can't speak to the quality of it, but there is. 
<laughs> Some people have had near life experiences. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, <that's>, yeah. <laughs> but, but here at this half century, I think I'm looking and I'm saying, down deep, I think my mission, if purpose, I, you know, whatever you want to call it, is I just want people to find magic mm. and to just live their lives, these magical lives. And by that, I don't mean that they have to, you know, believe in, you know, fairies and, and those kind of things. If they do, that's fine. But whatever creates a magical existence for them to there's a sense. And for me, I, when I just say magic, it, to me, it's a sense of intent, uh, enchantment and wonder that unfortunately most people don't experience in their lives. And if they do, it's doing certain things every now and then, you know, I mean, it's like uh, if you find magic in the life by exploring the Amazon, that's great. Mm -hmm. But I don't want you to have to go there every month to feel you have a life full of meaning. I want you to explore the Amazon of your own world, of your own magic mind. of everyday life. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so that's kind of where I, I think my work is taking me. I think I, after the last 20 years, I've done enough in the trenches of dealing with, uh, you know, and I still do with, with people with the problems that we encounter in mental health uh, field. But I want to, I'm kind of branching out there. I get more people going like, I, I think I'm okay, but I've just lost meaning. I've lost the idea of, of magic, that connection to the, to nature, that, that greater world. And to me, if you have this feeling of, of magic and wonder and enchantment in your world, when you do get these things called problems, I found that they're a lot easier to, to navigate. If you have that sense of mystery in your life, I mean, we're all, I mean, all going to have pain. We're all going to have joy. But when you feel like you're connected to something greater than yourself, and that could be a some kind of deity, or it can just be nature, the idea that we are all part of this vast network of uh, consciousness or however you see it, that to me is, is the more pressing, particularly for our culture that becomes more and more technological. Mm. Um, and, and this, this thing, particularly I, I worry about younger people who don't have that sense of wonder unless it's tied to something technical, Yeah, because then they kind of merging that transhumanism kind of thing. And it's like, there's already magic in the world right in front of us. There is. And, uh, I think that's kind of where I'm I'm headed. When people call me for coaching and things like that, that's what tends to you know, either help me with this difficult client I have or somebody outside the field is like, I want to have more magic in my life and be more inspired. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of where I'm headed these days. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. Wow. Thank you for doing that. I oh, mean that from the bottom of my heart because um, that speaks to maybe what makes my heart light up. When you, when you talk about... Um, finding the magic in the intangible, you know, in, in the things that, that the, in feelings, in, in the fascination for being alive and the possibilities that are there. I, that's to me really, really important. And, and when I don't have that, I, I do feel depressed. Sure. Sure. And a lot of times it's because we're not in touch with ourselves. Yeah. We're, we're bought into the social conditioning that we're supposed to be a certain way and have a certain thing. And be real quick story. I talked with someone who I will not uh, name, who was just seeking some coaching out. And he's a very well-known uh, hypnotherapy therapist uh, overseas. And I just talked to him like five minutes. And then I just got this urge to say, stop, stop talking. You're a healer. Mm -hmm. You're a healer. Why aren't you accepting it? And this guy just broke down in front of me. 
And it's, he's, he's cut himself off from the magic in his life because he's trying to please some outside, you know, authority. I want to be respected by other therapists or all this nonsense. That's not helping anybody other than giving him an ulcer. And just the fact that who you are is a healer. And yeah. if you're a healer, that's the magic. That's what you do. And you know, you may be, I could easily said to him, you're a scientist. You're, yeah. and if that resonated with him, then he'd probably cry at that too. But so many of us were so disconnected to who we are. And I think everybody comes into this world naturally with an affinity to be a certain way. And then we let society and culture just kind of get us all screwed up. And then we have to go to a hoodoo doctor to get us, <laughs> get us yeah. right. You know? Well, you know. Well, actually, I, I listened to you. You you did a, a little brief um, kind of a live or a YouTube thing. It was, I don't know, maybe 10 minutes where you were talking about uh, the phenomena of people who are in the coaching and therapist kind of um, field mm-hmm. um, having a hard time with the word healer. And you described that. And I just, man, I drank that in because I have used that to describe myself but in the last few years, I've started to feel a little maybe shy or embarrassed about using that word. And I decided to just keep using it anyway, but I didn't really have a rationale behind it. I just kind of felt like, well, it's just who I am. I got to accept that. I, I am that. But then when you when you put it into words and broke it down in that way, it gave me kind of like a bridge to feeling even more secure in saying it. Right. So I appreciate you saying that. Oh, yeah. Thank you. And I appreciate yeah. that. And but both of you guys are healers. Yes. You just do it in different ways. Yes. And and I think that's the problem. That that term healer, it goes in two directions. One, it goes out to uh a la la land to where mm-hmm. you know you you're you you know you're the second coming of Shirley McLean, you know, with the you know what I'm saying. All right. I do. Uh, I do. And, and you know what? That actually may work. Yeah. And going back, mm-hmm. it's not it's not the theory of the technique. But the other way now, it's like, well, if you're a healer, we'll just cure my cancer right now on the spot. It's like, well, yeah, I'm just like Jesus Christ. I put my hands on you and, you know, all, all the this cancer goes away. But there's that middle ground. See, healers have been with us from day one and they change their names. They change the way they yeah. look. They change mm-hmm. they, the, the Druid healers didn't have licensing boards. You know what I'm saying? They just. <laughs> It just was uh, the Chinese masters when they were doing their thing. Every culture, the Amazon, they don't have a test you take. It comes down to the results you get. Mm-hmm. Whereas in our over our left brain, overly rigid need to standardize everything and to make it, you know, now you have to read, oh, did you go to school and you did all these things? Okay, well, now you can go out and be a therapist or a hypnotherapist or a coach or a physical therapist, occupational therapist, medical doctor, blah, blah, blah. But that doesn't really mean you're a healer. Mm-hmm. And I think some people come into this world with healers. You are two of them. I can just tell. I mean, I know what it's kind of like that old thing, like the gunslingers, where they said they could just look and they know this guy's don't mess with this guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Healers are the same kind of way. You just kind of sense it about uh, the person. Now, I have struggled yeah. with that term healer myself. Mm. And what I did, and I encourage everyone who's listening to do this. If you're on the fence, I, I maybe I want you to take your business card. No matter what business it says, it could be, you know, lawn care management. I don't care. It's a business card. I want you to take it with your name, create one if you don't have one. And I want you to mark out whatever your job title is. And I want you with a colored marker, and you know which color, to write healer underneath. And then I want to want you to put it under your pillow for two nights. 
and record your dreams for those two nights. And then look at those dreams when you pull that card out two days later. I guarantee you, if you do this with an open mind, something's going to happen. I don't know what it is, but it's all there. So don't be afraid. I, mean, I still wrestle with it. But when you open yourself up to that, that helped me a lot to yes. just say, OK, that's, that's what I do. I, I'm, I'm a healer. I don't say I'm curing cancer because that's not my job. There are other people who do that job and they're wonderful. Thank God. But my job is to be me and is to be in relationship with someone else in that moment to say, hey, you ever thought about this or let's do this? Totally different. But we minimize ourselves. We all minimize ourselves. And I don't know why we do that. Maybe it's just an inherent thing. Maybe it's that evolutionary thing. But if you're a healer, even if you don't have to put it on your business card, if you feel it in your heart, and this sounds kind of touchy-feely, but it's absolute truth. If you feel it in your heart, Mm-hmm. And you sit down and you think about working with someone and as being a healer. And when those tears come to your eyes, that's all the validity you need. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A magical moment in that. Yes. yes. Love that. Mm-hmm. Me too. That was great. I love it. Yeah. And this was, uh, all of this is so immensely valuable and I can just sense that there are, uh, many other chapters that we could get into. Yeah. Um, obviously, we want to keep our, our uh, timing down to a reasonable mm-hmm. amount uh, for, for the listener. But um, I wondered if, if you would be um, amenable to having a, an additional conversation at some point, uh, maybe even after I've taken your course, so I might have more questions and things like that. W- would you be okay with that, having coming back on the show at some point? Absolutely love it, man. And um, if you're if you're going to take the course, I'm 2030. I think I'm available when you have done the course. <laughs> Just had to rag you a little bit, Carlos. Uh, so I'll be, uh, you know, <laughs> no, anytime, guys. No, I'm 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 happy. This is this Thank has been you. absolute delightful. Great, lovely. And Thank you. Sure. Yeah. Could you share with us um, how people get in touch with you? Like, what are the different ways? Where are you? What formats are you on? What- you know, yeah. uh, the best way to get in touch with me, you go to my website, uh, Dr. Paul Leslie, that's D-R-P-A-U-L-L-E-S-L-I-E.com. And then you'll find links to uh, all my books, my uh, online courses, my social media, it's just the easiest way. And you can Google me, Paul, the initial J Leslie is uh, probably the easiest way it comes up. But yeah, Dr. Paul Leslie, and uh, you can contact me, anyone you know, can contact me through the website. Great. That's awesome. And I will just say for the listener, um, do check it out because uh, Paul uh, puts out, you know, little helpful videos and there's all sorts of material that's out there and and you interact, which is kind of nice. You know, it's not like you're so far removed that that people just, oh, they'll never get in touch with you. It's like, I remember right away when I signed up for your course, um, you were checking back with me to make sure that, you know, that things went smoothly and things like that. And, and it just was like, hey, there's a human being on the other side of it. So, <laughs> it's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's nice. So, well, guys, this was a wonderful conversation. Um, yeah. All right. Awesome. Very much. Paul, so great to to connect with you like this today. You know, I, I, I it's amazing how how um, connected we can feel with somebody and just like we've never met before and just one awesome conversation and now I feel like I've known you for years somehow. Yeah, so, and all the all the good and the bad. So, uh, you know. <laughs> well, listen, I really appreciate the work you guys do, and I hope you continue it because I think you are providing a resource for probably more people than you realize to start different kinds of. Because I know you're all the different topics you do to start these conversations, which um, 
the conversation is a, is a lost art form. I remember I happened to come across a uh, band I used to listen to in the 80s called Missing Persons. Oh, yeah, I remember them. They have a song called Words, and I think it goes something like, what are words for when nobody's listening anymore? Yeah. And you guys are actually keeping this going to where you get people to listen. And I think that is such a valuable thing in today's world. So thank you again for having me. Thank you. Oh, thank you for that. Yeah. yeah. All right. Until next time. Yeah, until next time. Okay. Cheers, everyone. You've been listening to The Authenticity Show with your hosts, Carlos Casados and Satch Purcell. Very special thanks to our guest, Dr. Paul Leslie. My name is Oliver Altine. I produce the show. I also wrote our theme song, which you're listening to right now. If you're interested, the name of this song is Wedding Bells for the Dead. You can find it on all the major streaming platforms. Please connect with us on social media. That means like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, and check out our YouTube page. And you can find our website at authenticityshow.com. Thanks for listening, and have an authentic day.